Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Chukat and Balak are sometimes read together uh, as a double parsha, but because we are in a leap year, we separate out all of those doubles. The ones that are usually doubled, we separate out because we need four more Shabbatot. We have, when we have a second Adar, we need four Shabbatot of readings. So we are going to look only at Chukat this morning. So would somebody like to begin at 19.1? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ritual law that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelite people to bring you a red cow without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which no yoke has been laid. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest. It shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. The cow shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, flesh, and blood shall be burned, its dung included. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson stuff and throw them into the fire, consuming the cow. The priest shall wash his garments and bathe his body in water. After that, the priest may re-enter the camp, but he shall be impure until evening. He who performed the burning shall also wash his garments in water, bathe his body in water, and be impure until evening. A man who is pure shall gather up the ashes of the cow and deposit them outside the camp in a pure place to be kept for water of lustration for the Israelite community. It is for purification. He who gathers up the ashes of the cow shall also wash his clothes and be impure until evening. This shall be a permanent law for the Israelites and for the strangers who reside among you. All right, so this is the famous para aduma the red heifer, if you will. Um, And it is apparently a rare, very rare thing that one finds uh, para aduma. According to the rabbis, it had to be all red with not even one hair being another color at all. So it was an extraordinarily rare thing to find uh, this red cow um, and so it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting ritual different from some of the other sacrificial offerings that we have and this is used um, so t- tell me what it's used for what purgation. purgation what do we know about purgation okay but it's not an implication of um Automatic wrongdoing. It's what? It's not an implication for like automatic. It's not a sin offering. It's sort of like a cleansing offering. So what's the difference? It's ritual cleansing. So the so the sin offering generally is a ritual that affects some kind of repair, right? Around this idea of of sin of the blood being the detergent where's the blood of the animal where does that usually go so it's dashed on the altar right it's the blood that has um, efficacy right and so the blood is dashed on the altar because what is it cleansing what is the blood cleansing 
the altar. It's cleansing the space, right? The blood is cleansing the space. Because the space is sacred space, the contamination of sin is drawn to that sacred space. So the usual case is, so you want to cleanse the space of what's the contamination that's been brought by wrongdoing. Where's the blood from the red heifer? Towards the front of the tent of meeting, it says. So the blood of the red heifer is burned with the cow. Why? Why? You sprinkle it. They sprinkle it first. But it's going to stay with the cow. Thus, all the blood from the red cow, except for the few drops sprinkled by the priest, is burned in the fire. It's all done. It's all done outside the camp. Yeah. Except for the blood that's sprinkled towards the tent of meeting. So generally, it's the blood is emptied there at the altar. Now it's gonna. There's a bit that's sprinkled, but the rest goes to be burned outside the camp. So the rabbis are understandably a little confused. The, but the text is confused. The, I mean, the text, it says, you shall give it, so this is the cow before it's killed, the bull before it's killed, mm-hmm. you shall give it to Eliezer the priest. It shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. So presumably the slaughtering also takes place outside the camp mm-hmm. and nowhere near the tent. So, so the, all of it's happening outside. Right. So why, what's, the, what's going on here? Why is this so different from a normal offering right? that, that is somehow about cleansing the sacred space? So for the, the commentators look deeply into um, what is the purpose? What is purgation? What is chatat generally about? Um, and so what, what they... What they do is that they say the blood is what is the decontamination agent. In the case of the red heifer, therefore, the, it, the red heifer's ashes are going to be sprinkled on somebody. So the idea is it's burned with its blood because it's the blood that's efficacious. That means the blood has to be in the ashes that you put on somebody. Yes? As your as this purgation, right, for it to have the purgation effect. So this is the, um, it's the paradox of the red cow, right, because that which decontaminates, because it's so strong, a decontaminant, that it's, you know, reserved for certain occasions, it's such a strong decontaminant that it, renders the person who handles it impure. Right? So it's a, it's a paradox unless we, for me, if you compare it to modern medicine, it's a little easier to understand that deep paradox. People are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can it decontaminate and render someone now pure because you've used it on them, but the person handling it is impure? What, what is that? But... If you think about my, in my family, we know the drug Ritalin, right? What happens to somebody without ADHD who takes Ritalin? 
It gets stimulant. It's spe- I mean, it's a stimulant, right? So you're kind of, it makes you hyper. But if you have ADHD, you take Ritalin, and it settles you and focuses you. It's the same exact chemical compound. Some people have said that's how you really diagnose ADHD. If it works. If it works. Give someone Ritalin, and if it works, aha, this is ADHD, right? Because because it it it, sli- it slams the brain back into you know into this place of focus and um, and allows attention to be focused when one is bored. Let's be clear. ADD is not about not being able to focus. ADD is about not being able to focus on something that bores us, right? So because you you can't and you can't initialize the attention when it's needed. So. Um, so that's for me the the case of the red heifer. That if you're not if you're not impure from something, then if you handle it, it changes your uh, it. Let's let's say it switches, you know, whatever's going on. That that that's what it does. It's the same thing of chemotherapy. The nurses who deliver it have to wear gloves and all that, and yet it cures the patients. Right. So, right. so it kills a bunch of stuff. So if you're healthy. You don't want it killing stuff. If you're sick with cancer, you want it killing ev- every rapidly dividing cell in the body. It, very good, very good analogy. What the, mo- what the modern commentators get out of this? Just, just seem, this, is, this seems to me to be like one of the... Out of the red heifer? You say, oh, <laughs> You know, and this is our sacred book. And yeah. clearly it made a lot of, I mean, I assume it made a lot of sense to people who were more oriented to what all this is. <laughs> I can't wrap my head, it's not like love your neighbor as yourself. I can't, it, can't right. wrap my brain. Right. It, yeah, it's, the, you know, they're... How do they reconstruct it? Yeah. It you'll, you'll notice that's not what I'm handing out to you today. <laughs> is a teaching about this uh-huh. for our time? I Dana? I was thinking of how pagan the whole thing sounded, but then when you think about blood being a life source, you know, they, they were figuring out something there that was really important about that blood, and it, was, it became a symbol when it turns to dust. It still was important, they knew. And even when I was thinking about some other religions and their focus on blood, I won't mention it, I mean, it's like, I'm like, oh, that's so, like, whatever. But then when you see what we did and the symbolism we placed on it, you know, you can see how they wanted to great and important event with blood. Right. So, you know, so reconstructing it goes to, you know, what are the ways that we engage the life force and the trust that we are given the opportunity to fix it, you know, to 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 deal with the contaminations of life. What are we the, the rabbis understood this as a gift from God, right? So for them, this is a loving God who wants us to have lots of ways back into, you know, a state of regularity when things happen that always that aren't always in our control, right? So so the 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 ritual is to deal with a situation that we don't control, which is death. Right? This it's the ultimate anti-life force, death. And that's what the para aduma is involved in, right? You get a ritual involving blood, the life force, to deal with the contamination that comes from contact with the anti-life force. 
So, so for us, what, what are the ways? My, I had a teacher in rabbinical school who said that if you want to be a rabbi and you want to survive in this field, then after every single funeral, you must, as a rabbi, not optional, you must do something that is life-affirming for yourself. Whether that's a Starbucks latte, you know, what, whatever it is. For me, it was always a new pair of earrings. Um, so whatever it is, you must have some ritual that you can do that, that you can do. So it can't be, okay, well, when it's sunny, I'll go. No, no. It has to be something you can control having access to that you can do every time you finish a funeral. Because if you don't, exposure to the anti-life force repeatedly without some repair, without some entrance of the life force into that will exhaust, deplete, depress, and ruin you. And so I think that wisdom is still there, that we, if we're open to it, is that when we're dealing constantly with the, or when we deal with the death force, which is, that really isn't that the like scariest thing there is for us, um, is non-existence, that someone else's non-existence, our children, our grandchildren, our dogs, their non-existence is, isn't, what's more distressing to us at the existential level? And so what are, what are the ways to reconstruct it? What are the ways we can affirm life, connect ourselves to life when we are exposed to the reality of, of death? And I think that is something that is ongoing. Um, Right, because impurity in this system was a state of dysregularity. Yeah. So we, it interrupts our regular flow in the stream of daily living. To have the death force you know, come in takes you out of the ordinary stream of life. And these were their ways of trying to address that to bring someone back into knowing that there just needs to be a time that you're over here. That's what Shiva is. It's understanding that there needs to be given time and attention to the state of otherness because that's important too. Holding people in a state of otherness. It doesn't mean you immediately bring them back into regular life. Shiva, the laws of Shiva are all about what you don't do. What you are excused from because you are in a state of mourning. So that it's, it's saying, Dafka, you're not supposed to be in the normal flow of life for seven days. There are other restrictions that last 30 days. Because you're not supposed to be in the regular stream of things for 30 days after a significant loss. It doesn't make any sense. So it's not saying it's here to fix it. It's saying it's here to address it. And then at some point, after being held in that state of otherness, gradually, you know, Shiva's one level, Shloshim is another, the first year is another, and eventually there's a way to mark re-entry into the stream of, of complete regularity. It, isn't this ritual also about uh, the, the transition towards viewing even dead people as having value? In the sense that I mean, you have to do a ritual, but you're but you're commanded to to sort of treat them with respect. I mean, these are people who are 
coming out of a place where less than 40 years earlier, if there was a dead one, they would probably be tossed into a mass grave or that, you know, where they would just be left to rot wherever they were because they were slaves and their, their lives had no value. And now you're getting to a place where, well, we're not going to treat our dead people like that. This is how we're going to treat our dead people. Um, is um, there, could there be any of that? Or is this more, or is this more emblematic of the types of cultures that they were, that other Canaanite and in that general surrounding area, they had cultures similar to this? Yes, it's it's more that I think that yes, that um, I mean, what what it's different from is the Egyptian obsession with death, mm-hmm. right? So the Israelite distinction is we want to focus on life, right. they not almost, they almost welcome. It, right, right. Their whole focus was the afterlife, and you know, and and death as a, as a very big part of their religious orientation. And the Israelite, you know, dif- differentiating themselves from that is um, they focused very much on life and the life blood as the life force. Um, and everyone in the ancient Near East had these rituals. This was universal for the ancient Near East. Uh, and that so then it's a question of what's the Israelite. Reconstruction of of those. Is there anywhere where it's written that after a funeral you go to the home or you go to the family of the deceased and you eat? Because that <laughs> what is more life affirming than refreshing your body in that way? Yeah. But is that stated someplace, or did we just we're so? <laughs> there, there is always a seudat mitzvah, right? So whenever there's a simcha, there's a seudat mitzvah. There's a meal associated with that event. Is there a mandated seudah for avelut, for mourning? I do not know that. That is an interesting question, Sarah. I, I don't know. It is a universal um, understanding that we are to accompany the dis- the Mourners in their, to their home. you know, to accompany them during that time, and so of course the assumption would be that would include eating. Um, I'd have to look. That's a good question. I have to look and see if there's an actual, you know, textual reference to that to meal. But you have to wash after the cemetery. Of course, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. of course, <laughs> of course. You can't come to the house without. Ritually purifying oneself, of course. I think one of the reasons we may have trouble dealing with this is that unlike all of human existence up to like the 20th century, we have very little contact with death other than rabbis and doctors. Most of us in our lives, I mean, probably we're around less than 10 people who passed away. Somewhere in that number. But if you go back death was an everyday occurrence. If you go back to these, you know, people were dying all the time. Children were dying, older people were dying, and it wasn't put off in funeral homes, and it wasn't isolated from the community. So this was something everybody, including children, had to deal with from the time they were born. It was a much more constant presence in their lives. It was a constant presence, and probably this appears to be less of an issue for us today because death like the way we eat, you know, we eat from the supermarket, not from animals. It's the same thing. We've segregated it. We've gotten it out of our lives to a large extent. We've put it off in other buildings, except for when it totally touches us with a very close relative. 
Um, so I think that's one reason that, at least for me, that I, I have trouble really hooking into, you know, why is this so important? Contact with the dead, that happens so rarely. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you look at places today, like, for example, where there's war, or you look at places where there's starvation, whether it be in Africa... Or malaria. Or, or malaria, people deal with this every day. There's not a day when there is not dead bodies, you know, all over the place. That's right. And how many times, you know, if there's a dead body on the street in the Palisades, once it'd be the biggest piece of news. Was? Yeah, yeah okay. it was, says right, Marga. Right, right. Somebody, huge piece of news. Whereas it, uh, in those times, it was. They needed a re- they needed these whatever. responses to exposure to death in a way you know that that we feel disconnected from. Mickey. I'd like to get back to food. There, there are traditions where the community uh, bring food to the home of the bereaved. It isn't that the bereaved has to call the caterer and have a big party and celebration of life. They bring, they, they make the bereaved uh, feel at home and that they're in the love of the community itself. Yep. So these are. It's not party time. So the community brings the life force back to... Correct. Lovely, Dana. Yes, it is on the community to sustain life, to, to feed, which is so nourishing and life-giving, as you've said, Sarah. Yes, it's on the community to do that because it's understood that when you are in that space of mourning, you not only cannot, but you should not, right? You should be sitting down on the floor doing nothing except being other being in a state of complete otherness because that's that's what it is to deny that would be n- n- disharmonious it's the only word that comes to mind Mickey? Unless you're little when the rabbis or care, uh, caregivers people who do hospital visitations they're going to uh, uh, transplants congenital heart failures uh, leukemias they're visiting all these patients, and uh, 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 they're trying to. Um, well, there's sometimes a relative visiting, and you have this atmosphere. And it seems that the uh, the professionals that do this, uh, when they leave at the end of the day, personally, there's a a, a sort of a cleansing that. Uh, they're not in that position. They're healthy, they're carrying on, they can do so much. I, I know several, even, well, even my own work, when I get through, and I've talked to other uh, people uh, who do visitations, they go to the same thing in order to get them <clears throat> out of that atmosphere. Of, uh, they don't want to get depressed. They're, they're there to cheer people up or to comfort them. and. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, it's they take time off, just quiet place to think about it and, and appreciate the fact that they're healthy, they're able to. It's a cleansing sort of thing that's yeah. able to help other people. On good days, <clears throat> on good days, that's what happens. Yeah. Lots of days, that's not what happens. Okay. Right, and I mean, I mean that that's. Yes, when we're healthy and rested and in touch, that's exactly what happens. But I know lots of clergy and lots of doctors who burn out 
or become cynical or disconnect and stop feeling um, because they can't, they don't do that work of, rep- you know, of repair at the end of every day. And it, and it, it becomes a really destructive thing. So when we're well and healthy and doing it right, 100%, that's, that's the way to do it. Um, other days it's like... Hmm? This is the instruction for those people who have to care for. Right. So in terms of reconstructing it, when we ask what does that look like, it's about you know what Mickey said. So how how do we do that now? How do we make sure we're doing that now? And this is a real crisis in the in the caregiving industry, if you ask me. It's a huge crisis that we don't do this work. Um, many of us. We go home and there's a kid who's been waiting for us all day, who now wants us to cook dinner and now wants us to do this, and the dog has to be walked and the you know, I mean. And we don't do that a lot, a lot of the time, and it's it's a real it's a real issue. Um, it's a real challenge, I, I think. I think. One more thing on a lighter tone: Orange here in her glorious days uh, gave a dissertation at Sinai Temple on the, um, the red heifer. Can we get a copy of that? <laughs> Can we get a copy of that? Well, I'm not sure she remembers that. <laughs> that would be wonderful to know what she... Yeah, do you have a copy? In your computer or something. In your files. In your Xeroxed files. All right, so let's, let's move on to this next incident. So we're coming out of a ritual that is about repair, right? And we're coming out of um, a ritual that has to do with death. Let's go to verse 20, I mean chapter 20, somebody read. The Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zin on the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The community was without water, and they joined against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished at the instance of the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There's not even water to drink. Go on. Moses and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and fell on their faces. The presence of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and your brother Aaron take the rod and assemble the community. And before their very eyes, order the rock to yield its water. Thus you shall produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the land I have given you. Those are the waters of Meribah, meaning that the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, through which he affirmed his sanctity. All right. Wow. So this is a huge, huge uh, scene in our tradition. It is 
the excursus in the back of my book, which they have an excursus whenever there's a topic that has to be addressed hugely and can't just be done in the notes under the commentary. The excursus is eight pages long on this incident because it has troubled exegetes for a long time. The exegesis of this passage is really complicated. It's very hard. It's very troubling. Why is it troubling? Why, why do they care so much about this incident? God was being picky. Okay, and so so why do we care what God thinks in this case? Why do we care so much? Why is it such a big deal? Well, because it, 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 it's, it's big in the sense that Moses and Aaron uh, can't go to the can't, can't enter the land that God had promised. The consequence seems hugely disproportionate to the action, which which picky, which makes God not look so terribly good in in this passage. So this is one of the reasons it becomes a huge rabbinic question: what's really happening? Because it's a defense of God. Right, because God looks fairly picky. If you just read the surface of it, right, God looks like you're going to do what? Moses has served you truthfully, valiantly for his whole life, and one time, one time he does something different. Okay, a little different than what you said, and. The consequence is he doesn't reach the promised land that, that he's led everybody to for all this time. That seems a little like God has a, God, God's own temper problem going on. And God needs some defense, says Reuben. So this, in rabbinic tradition, is their job. And, and Moshe is in that other state having just lost his sister. Okay. So... So, so excellent point, Pam, which is why I went to the Red Heifers about dealing with death, right? Because that's, here's what happens, here's death, here's this amazing ritual, this magic, wonderful, not magic, God forbid, it, this wonderful way to address that issue, to bring one into right relationship. Here we have now a scene relating in some way to death. Miriam, Moshe's sister, dies. This incident immediately follows, if, unless it doesn't, but, but for the rabbis, right, they link the fact that she's just died to everything that comes next. The 40 years of travel in the desert was a cleansing period for the next generation to come into being and uh, the new generation will take over. The same thing with Moses. Uh, Forty years, how old was he when he left Egypt? Old. Eighty. So uh, we have a concept in Judaism, your life's work, you do whatever you can. You're never finished with your life's work. But someone else will take over. Okay. So, uh, so we'll go to the message um, that's where Rabbi Jonathan Sachs goes. Um, I have another issue with this. Another the, one? The, yeah. The people, Just one? The people, well, <laughs> another among men. Right. Okay, so the people are quetching. The pe- <laughs> They're just complaining, right? Mm-hmm. And God caves. 
God caves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He rewards their bad behavior by saying, okay, you're complaining, okay, I'll give you water. All right, so Which, <laughs> so we have the people are thirsty. All right. Why are, so the rabbis also tie Miriam's death to the fact that the people are thirsty. Where do they go? Miriam died. Immediately next, the people are without water. For the rabbis, what must that mean? She provided water. Miriam somehow provided water. They make that immediate connection, and they look elsewhere in the Torah, and they find this beautiful creative reading of another part of Torah. Um, and the Midrashim are very clear that Miriam and the women would call, and the waters would respond. This, and that wherever Miriam was, there would be a well of water that slaked their thirst, as well as healed anything that was wrong with them. Pretty good. So this is one of the places we get the tradition of Miriam being associated with water. So how, whether we go there or not, the people are thirsty. Have we seen this before? Oh, yeah. Where do we see it before? Where don't we see it practically? Where don't we see it practically? That's the complaining. The complaining we, we see everywhere. But in the book of Exodus, we have a parallel narrative where the people are complaining because they are thirsty. What is Moshe told to do in that instance? There's going to be something with a stick and a rock in both stories. There's a stick and a rock in both narratives. Moshe was told to take the rod and strike the rock with the rod. Boom, and water would come out and slake the thirst of the people. Yes? All right. So... Now, what happens here? Again, the people are thirsty, right? What do they do? They join against Moshe and Aharon. So they're coming after Aharon and Moshe. Vayariv ha'am in Moshe. And they fight with Moshe. They, right, they, they're coming after Moshe. If only we had perished when our brothers perished at the instance of the Lord. What's that referring to? I go back to Korah? Ah, maybe it goes back to Korah. This is where a lot of the commentators go. They're talking about the incident with Korah. Yes? So... At the end of the Korach episode, you'll recall, they challenged, blah, 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 250, fire pans, boom, earthquake, bad, swallow, gone, right? What happens? What's the, we rarely study it. What, what happens? What is Aharon told to do at the end of that whole business? He's told to take his staff, when the challenge to Aharon comes, they're all to take their staffs, one, right, one for each, you know, tribe that's right there, and they, 
and they they put them in the ground. And what happens to Aaron's staff? Blooms. It blooms. That's how they know Aaron truly is the one true priest, right? Because remember, the, there was a challenge to Aaron's priesthood, is that you'll take the staff, it is dead. What's going to happen to it? It's going to magic. God, I, I got to stop using that language. I'm, lightning's going to come. So the, there's a staff, it's dead, and the God who works through the universe in miraculous ways brings it to life. Right. You need water for that to happen. Oh, yeah. interesting. You think they snuck in That's, and watered it? <laughs> usually, life is connected to water. Good, Ruben. Good. So you can see we've got all these elements going on here of lack of water. Water is life. You're going to have water coming from a rock, which generally is not right where water comes from, um, an inanimate object like that, and something about a rod or a stick. Okay. S- the commentators are all over the map on this one, as you can as you can imagine. There are several paths to thinking about what happened, what went wrong, what was the sin that deserved such a huge consequence. So I want you to hold all of this. Just hold all of this. Moshe strikes the rock in our episode in Exodus. Water comes from the rock. The people's thirst is slaked. So it would seem staff, rock, smite, strike, water, everything's good. This is Moshe's experience. So it's even more puzzling, right, that there's a striking of the rock here and and water comes out of the rock but Moshe is, is severely punished for this episode. So you might say, wait a minute. God is really, really, really picky here. Because before, when Moshe strikes the rock, that's the right answer. Rock, stick, strike, water, good. Now, all of a sudden, you want me to speak to the rock? But okay, so he, he just does, he speaks, but he also does what he did before. Why is that such... A big deal. Let's move through the text. Can you strike it twice? Here, so let's go. So the people are indeed rebellious here. Yes? They're not just complaining about thirst. They, they're complaining about everything else, right? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or pigs or pomegranates, and there's not even water? Water's like the last... The last thing they say, they have a whole lit right here. We go again. Now, someone said the desert was supposed to be a cleansing experience for the Jewish people. Was it? Not yet. (laughs) No. This is part of the narrative. Again, we have this. We're dealing with another generation of Rebels, complainers, ungrateful, wretches, right? Like, it, it didn't work on some level. That's the under, that is, that is a theme running under this that we forget, is that we're dealing with two stories, but two generations as well. 
and that it's like it's still there's still complaint like really because each generation has to experience these things for itself and come to its own conclusions all right so each generation is going to go through this god is a little impatient about that right god you would think God might like kind of get that. Okay, these two are going to have to have stick, rock, strike, water happen for them too. So all around it feels like, why, why isn't everybody getting it? You know, and, and just deal with it. Just deal with them. They're whining and complaining. Okay, right. But Moses, Moses is kind of like the older dad or granddad who's driving the station wagon on a long cross-country trip with the kids whining in the back saying every five minutes are we there yet are we there yet and going through their litany of complaints and at the sort of at the beginning of the trip you know he's kind of like answering them and he's kind of trying to meet their needs but after like three days it's kind of like really I mean, you know, get a grip. We'll get there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there. And and I was reading in the bottom here, and part of the some of the commentators will say that what Moses is being punished for is, uh, you know, not the second strike, not, but just the fact that he he's gotten to the point that he's so worn out that he reacts in he overreacts in anger. To sort right, of so let's, almost a natural... Okay, I mean, so let's, let's go there. So let's go there. Let's look at the text. All right, so they're complaining. Moshe and Aaron, what do they do next? Verse 6 of, of chapter 20. Uh, came away from the congregation to the entrance of the meeting and fell on their faces. Okay. So often, Moshe gets frustrated with the people when they start complaining, right? Here, he, whatever he's feeling, and it may go to, to Richard's commentator's reading, is that Moshe and Aharon leave the congregation and they go to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fall on their faces. Is he exhausted? And he just can't handle it? Are they saying, you know what, we're, we're done. And we're going to let you, God, handle this one, because we're done. What does that expression mean? It doesn't mean they literally fell like you fall. Because I know that's, I've seen that. You, yeah, they prostrate themselves. Right? Yep. This is, the, like this, this is what you, always, always, that's what it means. Always. You prostrate yourself, and that is the way you request, if you're Moses, you request God's assistance is it because he's tired and it's day three on the car trip and he's run out of ideas and he's like you know what i'm pulling over and i'm gonna get out of the car and i'm gonna go and is that bad so it's so all right it's human maybe it's that they're afraid often falling on your face we know that this is the way moses propitiates god maybe moshe knows we've had this before they know what's coming this people is whining and complaining again, saying Egypt was better. You brought us out here to die, meaning the God you're following brought us out here to die, right? And they know what's going to happen, right? That God is going to be furious and is going to unleash 
something, it, they're going to unleash something that is going to be scary. So they know what to do. They go to the tent of meeting. They propitiate God. So they're trying to protect the people. Maybe they're trying to protect the people by going right to the tent. Uh-oh. Right? Danger. You run to the fire extinguisher. Right? You know, you, you don't stand there and go, oh my gosh, a fire. You run to where the fire extinguisher is and do what you have to do, which is possibly what they're doing. In either case... They could be complaining to God because Moses complained to God about why did you stick me with these people? Whatever what do I do now? the case... Vayark vod Adonai Alehem. I'm sorry, Vayerak vod Adonai Alehem. The kavod of Yudhevavhe, God's concentrated essence, appears to them. Verse 7. Okay, now you turn. Vayderber Adonai And God says to Moshe, Kach et hamateh. Take the rod. Yes? Take the mate and communify the people, you and Aharon, your brother, and speak to the rock or over the rock. Let Nahum before their eyes. Right? So it will yield water and you shall bring forth to them water. This is what God wants. You shall bring forth for them water from the rock. V'hishkita et ha'eda. You, what is, it's a very interesting Hebrew word, vihishkita et ha'eda. You shall water the people. But this is not the same word for water as water. So, how would you say you're watering the garden? Well, we don't have a. Quench. So, you shall quench the people. You shall slake the thirst of the people, right? It's a different word than you will water. It's, it's more like what. Biblically, what this word means is what you do when you have a flock. When you have a flock and it's time, or camels or whatever, you hishkita otam. You, you do what you have to do in order for the animals to be taken care of, to be tended to. And that is the word God uses to Moshe of what he's supposed to do right now with this ritual vis-a-vis the people. Just a quick question on verse 5, mm-hmm. where uh, the complaint is, why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? Mm-hmm. Which sounds like, you know, we've heard that before. But we before when we've heard it, more often it was from people who were actually in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Now we're hearing it mostly from people who were never in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And this must also be incredibly frustrating to Moses because... It's like, you have no idea what life was like in Egypt. And Who so are y'all to, say, to even to say, talk about this? To say, that, to say that this is a more wretched place than Egypt, you know, you don't have a clue. Okay, so that's even... Every parent's job. <laughs> it's even a worse you know, it's to crime. Explain, you know that word, Vahishkita, that you said? Mm-hmm. So he might have given them water, but maybe he didn't tend to them. 
Okay, so hold on to that. That's exactly one of the commentators. That's why I pointed out this word, because they look at this word and say, there is his sin. He was supposed to, hishkita, otam. All right, so let's stay there. For, I mean, let's go to um, la, 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 nine. So Moshe, vayikach Moshe milifnei Adonai. So he takes the mate, this, the rod, from before Yudhe Vavhe. Some of the commentators say this is a critically important piece of the narrative. What is he taking? The only staff that we know that's, that's Lifne Adonai is the one that bloomed. It's Aharon's staff because Aharon took it and they placed it, Lifne Adonai, before Yudhe as a sign to rebels. In that incident, let this be a sign, right? To any rebels, here's this blossoming staff. This is the source of Aharon's authority. Let it be there as a marker, as a reminder, as a symbol of Aharon's connection to Yudhe Okay, so if that's the staff Moshe took, let's just imagine that there's two ways to imagine it, that it isn't. Right, that, that he's got his rod that he's been using all along to strike the waters of Egypt and they become blood. He's right, he holds his staff above the, the waters and they part. Right, so Moshe has his own rod with which he has worked miracles before the snake. He throws it down, it becomes a snake. Yes, so Moshe might have his Harry Potter. You, oh, magic again. No, 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 he has his thing that helps. Okay, and then, or it is the staff that has blossomed that is the proof of the connection of this right and true priesthood to the one source of life. Yod hey, vav hey. All right, so. It says here, Rabbi, you and your brother Aaron take the rod. It doesn't say which rod. And assemble the community. This is God talking to uh, um, uh, Moses, telling him to take the rod. It's a very nice close reading, Reuben. So God doesn't specify. Moshe takes the staff from before Adonai. So that's where some commentators say it has to be the one. The only one that's been me, Lifnei Adonai, is the blooming one. Okay. But it doesn't say. So maybe it's his one that he's used all along for these kinds of things. The reason I'm pointing this out is there are two different responses then to what another look at the sin might be. If it's his rod, there's a different sin it might be. If it's the blooming rod, it's another sin that we might be talking about here. It's just it's a fascinating literary piece that we don't often, I don't think, appreciate the, the richness and depth of it. All right, so... So they assemble the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, Who's speaking? Moshe. And what does Moshe say? Shimuna. Right? Hamorim. Listen, you rebels. Shall we get water for you from this rock? Shall, Shall we get water for you? From this rock? All right. For some commentators, here is the sin. 
for the commentators, for some, this is the moment that Moshe goes completely off the rails, and it is a fatal mistake. It is a fatal error. What is the error? For some, we've just come out about, with a ritual that was all about rectifying the situation after death. Moshe has just experienced a death. The people are thirsty. God says, Hishkita otam. Take care of them. Tend them. And what does Moshe do? Question. He gets mad at them. He gets mad at them, and God says, order the rock, and Moses hits the rock. Mo- Not yet. We're, we're going to stay here. Moshe is ordered to speak to the rock. Who does Moshe speak to? The rebels. The, rebels, the people. And does Moshe hishkitautam? Does he tend and feed and water and take care of them as a shepherd should the shepherd's flock? No, he does not. Not only does he, and I'm just reading, I'm not saying, Reuben, I'm not saying, I'm just saying this is one reading, is he, he, not only does he not talk to the rock like he's supposed to, but he's supposed to talk to the rock in order to take care of the people. And what he does instead is he looks at them and he says, you rebels, should we should we bring water from this rock for you? And that made God angry. And God is furious with Moshe for failing to be a leader who could love his people unconditionally. Hang on, Richard. No matter what, right? That that he's he's not behaving as God's emissary, as God's chosen leader. He's acting like somebody maybe who's grieving. Somebody who's been touched by death and by loss right now. Maybe it's day three of the car trip and he's had it. He's exhausted. He's out of options and he turns on the people and calls them, you know, what they are. You know, rebels, indeed they are. And that he, for some of the rabbis, the real sin is not even the rebels part. It is the Hebrew nun. It's one letter. One letter is Moshe's fatal error, and that is Notzi. Shall we bring forth water for y'all? What is the sin? He, he made himself like God. I mean, he, he took the credit. Me, the committee, me and God. Yeah. Or me and Aaron. Shall me and Aaron bring forth water from this for you? Is one sin, possibly, right? Like, you ungrateful people don't deserve the water. Or is it, shall we bring forth water for you? This is Moshe's fatal error. Is it he, you can never, when you're representing God, in any way indicate that it is you who are doing it and not God. You are a vessel. You are a portal. You are an agent. You are God's representative at the bedside. God forbid you ever think it's you. And if you think that, okay, you need to go for therapy. You need to go get a massage. You need to go deal. You need something. But when you say, if you ever act or say it out loud, so that people have any opportunity to believe that it's you instead of God, you have now committed the most irresponsible act of heresy possible. That you make it, that you are the agent of this and not the source of all life. 
This is a fatal human error. And maybe Moshe is tired. Maybe we can understand that. In any case, it is clear to God, the best reading of God here is what Mickey said. The, if this is the sin, God's, the most generous reading for God here is what Mickey said. God gets it that Moshe is finished. It's not a punishment. It's that God understands that Moshe is not the leader for this generation, that he's had it. Either he's tired, he's exhausted, he's burned out, he's worn out, he's old and not able anymore to respond from a loving, you know, patient place as he always has, even if he yelled at them, he always defended them, and that he's, he can't do the job anymore. Maybe God wants him to do the job, but he, it's clear that he can't do it anymore. He just doesn't have it in him anymore, and that he's making dangerous errors He's making very serious errors that could have led to a worship of Moshe. When you start saying, okay, I'm going to bring forth water for you, right? And you do something and you, it looks like you are indicating that you are the source of the miracle. Now you've set up a very serious problem um, that would undermine the whole Yahweh project, right? It's not only that he could bring forth water if he wants to, but maybe he doesn't want to because the way he says it is, you know, shall I do this for you? And uh, so it's like he's threatening them. That's worse. And that God says, you know what, this is an indication. I love you, Moshe, but it is very clear that it's time. And you are not the one to take them in and build a new society, it is very clear that your your time is done. So it's clear, it's it's easy to understand why God may decide at this point. Okay, time for you to become emeritus, so. <laughs> not, as it were. Not to, as it were. As we say, lahavdil to distinct to distinguish right. from our right. situation. But but emeriti get to go to the college graduation. Emeriti, I mean, it's not like. Emeriti are cut off from the community. So what's the justification? Even if, even if essentially Moses is told, okay, we're, we're going to pick a new leader. Mm-hmm. What's the justification for, and not only that, uh, you won't cross the border. Right. So, it, so one could what's say, that? what's up with that? Let him go. Let Joshua become the leader, but let Moshe go at least. Have my little, little homestead where he can sit out on the porch. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, when he does see the next time and the next time, when is the when is it time for him not to go on to the next step and to not enjoy it? I mean, we say that to ourselves. There's another wedding, another graduation. And so here's here's the line. God says, you know what? Ultimately, your time, not just your you, not just your term, your time is finished. Your time is up, and so that's one reading. Um, another way to answer that is um, emeritus works as a relationship, as long as we say, Stephen will not be officiating at anything. Now I officiate at everything. The question is, can the people do that? So the king is dead, long live the queen, right, is often how it goes, because as long as the old king is around, no one's really going to give the queen the authority 
that she needs in order to be an effective ruler. If they could, that'd be great. But in general, mm-hmm. like you wait or hasten, mm-hmm. right, the demise of one in order for... So Joshua wouldn't really have a, enough authority to be an effective leader. As long as Moshe is still on the porch, people are going to sneak over to his house. But that doesn't have a point. It doesn't happen because we have the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is some of Moses' greatest orations. What doesn't happen? He's not pushed aside. Right, but in terms of his term... In terms of his term... Deuteronomy is a bunch of talking. No, I understand, but I mean, he continues... I mean, theoretically, in the other incidents where people disobeyed God, coming up here with the fire pans and uh, uh, Aaron's sons, they were just killed on the spot. Moses does continue to yeah. and does continue to present the dream and does continue to... Right. It, it's not that he's going to drop now. Yeah. It's that God, God seems to be saying, you're, you're not, you're not going to go past setting the right, dream. Right. You're not going to get it. That's all. It, it's, not, yeah, it's not happening now. Mm-hmm. But... but yeah, it's okay. not like he's being stripped of power. Right? Exactly. But God, it becomes clear to God right now that he's, he's not the one who's going to take them in. The next generation? He's not the next generation. The Israelites come to the promised land. This one's here, here, here. Moses is out of the picture. He, he couldn't function anyway. You have the judges that come about. It's a whole new master plan. And there's no... Uh, he's done, he did his job the new generations take over okay, we need a Joshua to be the leader right. not a Moshe and there's lots of written about that about why, you know, what is needed now is a warrior Moshe can't get on a horse and ride and you know, like rally the people to go to, to, to accomplish the conquest we need a warrior we need someone young and dynamic who can head the army And that, okay, so there's lots written on this there's two different kinds of leaders needed for two different kinds of situations. If we say that Moshe lost his temper and struck the rock out of temper, some people locate the sin there, that he lost it with the people, and strikes the rock in anger. And some people want to say, okay, that's bad enough. What makes it worse is he struck it twice. So once, okay, but then you have a second to collect yourself, and Moshe didn't. He struck it again. And that this is, this is where Moshe really, you know, um, go, goes directly against, again, what a leader needs to be doing, but what God wants him to do. All right, I want to close with thinking about these two kinds of staffs. Tell me how, no, I, I won't ask you, I'll tell you. Um, in Egypt, when Moshe performs miracles with his rod, let's, let's say it's Moshe's rod that we're dealing with. The one he did the water, the one he did the, the one he did the snake. If it's Moshe's miracle rod that we're dealing with. Every case it was God told him to do it. Yes. And God tells him here, take your staff. Okay. No worries. No problem. So far, so good. The challenge For scholars in the book that I told you, there's an eight-page excursus in the back. The conclusion is, what's Moshe's ultimate sin? It's a big one. It's a really bad one. It's that whenever he was performing those miracles in Egypt, he was silent. 
because the way those things are are done by magicians is you say the word and use your wand because the power, the manipulation of the power originates in the magician, right? Pharaoh's magicians say things, throw their staff, I don't, I don't know that that's in Torah, but the idea is they would say their words, throw down their staff and it became a snake. Moshe did the same thing, but what is the critical difference? Moshe is silent. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Because if you're silent, there can be no, um, no one can say that, oh, you must know the secret words, or you've got some sort of secret spell that you're doing. So, because without the words, you can't have magic happen without the words in the Egyptian setting of, of magic acts. This differentiates what Moshe is doing from magic which is why I was staying away from that word earlier, right? It's clear that it's not magic because he doesn't say the words. So how does, it, how does the staff turn into a snake then? <gasps> Pharaoh's court says, <gasps> it's not that the staff turns into a snake, duh, they can do that, right? What's the big <gasps> miracle? There. That there's no words and it happened anyway. There must be some other source of this, of this change. Oh, Oh my God, right? So, so what is then, if that's the reading, what's Moshe's big crime here? He speaks about bringing forth and strikes. He has now committed absolutely an act of heresy that is, he cannot recover from. He has acted like the magicians in Egypt to a people who that's what, the, the people who that's what they knew. It's been a huge jump for them to try to accept this Yudhevave business, and clearly they still don't. And now you undermine at the critical moment, you are going to demonstrate for them possibly that this is just like Egypt and there really isn't a Yudhevave. Now you're toast. You've committed treason. Moshe has committed treason. All right. So let's look at um, uh-huh. because on the because for, for people who say, but Moses did so many good things for so long, it just seems so excessive. What you're describing is really no different than, uh, say, a CEO who's had a very successful career at a corporation for 30 years, and everybody loves him. He's always made the right decisions, and then he sort of goes off the rails, and the board says. You know, sorry, this is completely unacceptable. It goes against our mission, and we want you out of here. Right, right. Or we have a president who's done lots of good things, and uh, there's this aide working for him. I mean, right? It, it may not seem like a big deal, but when you're the leader and you're in a position of influence like that, one act of questionable behavior, you're, you're done. Which means... Our tradition doesn't have like people or personalities that are eternally referenced to. Even though we have like the the matriarchs and the patriarchs, but they're not. They're like it's their lives we analyze and refer to all the time. It's not. And so it's one of the things I appreciate about Torah. As sad as this incident is, I appreciate the fact that this is how we end Moshe's story, so that there's no danger that he's lifted up as perfect. There's no danger that there's going to be a worship of Moshe because even Moshe 
right? You know, and, th- and that's important to me that this is the way it goes down, right? That, that we don't have a tradition that lifts him up as, you know, we're not a tradition that looks at Jesus as perfect and says, okay, so we're supposed to emulate that. We don't have perfection in a human being at all in Torah. All right, I want to close with this. I think this is a wonderful reading. So now, that's if it's Moshe's miracle staff, right? He's now imitated exactly what's going to undermine yud heh vav presence in their lives. What if it's Aaron's staff? That's what this commentary is going to go to. So when Moshe uses his staff in Egypt, go to page 8 of 11 that I gave you. Yes? Mm-hmm. Although staged in private, you see that? Mm-hmm. Right? He's supposed to take his stick and kind of parade in front of Pharaoh with the stick and then perform these, these miracles, yeah? Although staged in private, the show with the staff put on for Pharaoh's benefit is meant to be a show of force, yes? And when, when, when Pharaoh doesn't acquiesce to that show of force, watch what's going to happen. The river's going to turn to blood, the fish die, and no one can drink, right? So death comes, Pharaoh, you won't recognize the power of Yudhe Here comes blood, death, disease, destruction. All right. And it is this stick that God commands Moshe to take in his hand and parade before the people. And a show of force and power in the other incident, the other water incident, he's taking that staff that he turned the rivers to blood with, that staff of power, might, don't doubt Yudhevavhe's power, and he parades it in front of the people and brings forth, he strikes the rock with that staff and brings forth water. That was our first episode. But, beauty. That is not what we have here. Drop down. This brings us full circle, bottom paragraph, to Memoriva, the context of Sefer Bamidbar, and perhaps a fuller understanding of Moshe's failure to sanctify God. The children of Israel who arrive at Memoriva, that's our incident here, in the 40th year of their desert sojourn are in fact a different people than the people redeemed from Egypt. While the new generation's complaints may be similar to the old generation's complaints, they are subtly different. While the complaint narrative in Shemot, which culminates in that story about the water, is primarily about base needs, the rebellion, what's the rebellious aspect here in Sefer Bamidbar, uh, is about something slightly different. Turn your paper over. It is also about direction, goals, and the destiny of a group that refers to itself as the people of yud Vavhe or the congregation of God, Right? So we're going to drop down to what constitutes the solution to the crisis. The context of Sefer Bamidbar, the previous unfolding of the rebellion narrative has already provided the answer. For the generation of Egypt, referred to seven times throughout that narrative as Am, as people, a newly emergent nation, barely more than a rabble of slaves, force and power constitute the right means. Meaning that staff with which he did all that craziness in Egypt, all that destructive power, might, bigger than Pharaoh, Yudhevavhe is more powerful than Pharaoh, that was the right staff to use. That was the right approach to take. In contrast, For the new generation, the fire of God, the opening of the earth, and miraculous plagues will not resolve the crisis. 
only a demonstration of the life-giving and sustaining qualities of Moshe and Aharon's leadership will resolve the crisis. Only the sign of the flowering stick, or put differently, only persuasion rather than force and power can quiet the people. To put this slightly differently, drop down, meaning a whole, this generation requires the staff symbolizing flowering life and the life-giving leadership of Moshe and Aaron. Look at that paragraph to put this slightly differently. In accord with the needs and language of the new generation, God intends the events at Memorivah to unfold as a reversal of the events at, at the other one. Where the culmination of the complaint narrative there confirms that the people understand no language other than power and force, the story here is meant to reflect and lead to a new stage in the people's development. It is meant to help define a newly developed um, language of persuasion, of speech, of signs, and to perceive through their own intuition the life-giving quality of Moshe and Aaron's, by implication, God's leadership. Consequently, God commands Moshe to grasp the appropriate symbol and speak to the rock. So instead of what we had before, which was fine for that generation, this generation, that's not going to work. You have to take the flowering, life-giving energy that's represented by the staff that bloomed. You're to take it and rather than do what they expect, which is some act of, right, You are to use your words, you're to speak, so that this generation gets the appropriate understanding of God for them, the one that will lead them forward, the one that will help them build a promised land and a society based on equity and empathy and justice. That can't be the God of force. That worked for the generation of Egypt who were needing to move their allegiance from understanding Pharaoh as the greatest power in the world to Yudhavafe, but not this one. This one needs you to talk to them. Show them life. Show them there is something nourishing, something life-giving and life-sustaining about the relationship to this force. This force can take something dead and make it bloom. It can take dead things and make them come alive. That trust in that, some kind of proof that that is possible is what this people needs for them to become the inheritors of the land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that is life-giving, fertile, life-sustaining, to behave in ways that are life-affirming and life-sustaining. That is the only thing that's going to work with them, and this was not to be. So who wrote this? Oh, right. I'm going to have you post that, too. Um, Yeah. Um, So this is... uh, Rabbi Hanoch Waxman of Sticks and Stones, a commentary from Yeshivat Har Etzion, one of my favorite sources for really in-depth looks at the text. Um, So out of frustration at the people exhausted from their complaints and faced with the near same circumstances as 38 years previous, Moshe berates the people. They are Pharaoh at the river or they are the previous generation and the other story they do not know. They are rebels who understand nothing but power. So in that situation, Moshe hits the rock. But in so doing, although the people are certainly rebels, he commits a fatal mistake. 
He teaches the exact opposite lesson God intended. He uses the staff of Aharon just like the staff that smote the river. Without realizing, Moshe unwittingly undermines the lessons the new generation needs to learn. He sends the message that at the end of the day, the people are incorrect, are not incorrect. The leadership of Moshe and Aaron, and by implication, God rests not upon caring, sustenance, provision of life and persuasion. Rather, it rests upon power, force, and the threat of death. In some, Moshe sends the wrong message. I believe this is never more important than now. What are we going to trust in? Nuclear weapons, the threat of nuclear annihilation, right? The threat of our tanks and planes coming into your country. Like, what are we going to rely on to say there is real possibility for change? Is it strength and might and sticks that, you know, show, you know, that, that there's a force that you have to reckon with? Or is it, there is a life-giving, sustaining, growthful, transformation power, as Kaplan would say, capital P, that makes for transformation, capital T. There is that in the world, and here's the evidence of it. Sustenance, learning, growth, right? All those things, and every day, I believe we are called to make this choice. And sometimes, yes, that stick is the, is the only thing that's going to be effective, but, but the, the teaching here for me that's so important is Moshe his failure was in discerning that a different situation and a different set of circumstances called for a completely different course of action, one that would allow the people to truly uh, develop and grow in the ways that they needed. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org